0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, the extraordinary story of the Freedom Theatre and its fight to keep Palestinian culture alive.
2: Finding your perfect home was hard.
1: A warning before we start, this episode does include scenes of violence.
3: On the night of December the 12th into December 13th, there was an Israeli military operation in Janine Camp. Ahmed Tabassi was in his house, but he could see what was happening in the theatre on the security cameras, he had them connected to his phone. He saw soldiers ransacking his office, smashing up the theatre, and graffiti, including in one room drawing a red star of David, which was still there when I visited.
1: Ahmed Tabasi is the artistic director of the Freedom Theatre. It's one of the few outposts of Palestinian art and culture based in Janine refugee camp on the edge of Janine City. The camp is home to tens of thousands of displaced Palestinians living in the Israeli-occupied West Bank.
3: So Ahmed Tobasi had stayed up all night because he speaks English better than anyone in his family and so he wanted to be awake if the soldiers came through the door.
4: I know I'm the one who has to face it. If they come or if they storm in.
3: They finally burst in at 11 o'clock and he was waiting there and said to them, please, I speak English, tell me what you want. There's kids here, there's no violence, you don't need to worry. But they had their guns trained on him immediately, ordered him to take off his shirt, to put his hands up. He took off his shirt to show that he didn't have a suicide vest. They went through the house. The kids were crying, screaming with fear. They smashed up a lot of things, including a guitar, and they took a new MacBook that the theatre had spent 2,000 euros getting. You could imagine for a small theatre like that. That's devastating. And then they ordered him outside. Ahmed says he was led outside,
1: without his shoes on or a jacket, in the December cold. He was driven
4: away by the soldiers in a truck. All this time you are blindfolded, handcuffed. You don't know anything.
3: He said he was beaten, kicked. And then he said they'd submitted him to a form of torture, which was used, for instance, at Guantanamo Bay, which is putting someone into a stress position. Basically, you put someone into an uncomfortable position and then you don't let them move. And holding something that's initially uncomfortable becomes agonising over time.
1: Ahmed says he then faced a mock execution. He says the soldiers took him blindfolded to the edge of a busy road, and ordered him to the ground as traffic thundered past. Ahmed was shaking, not knowing how close the lorries or trucks speeding towards him really were.
3: Every time he heard them come close, he thought he was going to die. He said they held him for 14 hours of psychological torture. So Ahmed doesn't know if he was detained because they knew who he was... And it was related to the theatre, or if they just came into the house and decided that for whatever reason they considered him suspicious. He doesn't know why he was held, and he will never get an explanation for that.
4: All these fourteen hours is like nothing. Nobody talked to me. Nobody asked me. Nobody told me why I'm here. It's crazy.
1: But Ahmed wasn't the only Freedom Theatre worker to be picked up by the Israeli army that night.
3: At the same time that the soldiers came for Ahmed. Jamal Abu-Jawas was beaten and then released. Mustafa Shetta was given six months in administrative detention.
1: The December siege of Janine camp lasted several days. Up to 500 people were detained, and at least eight Palestinians were killed. The Israeli military say the raid on Janine was part of a counter-terrorism operation. They say Hamas embeds itself into
4: civilian institutions. They come to tell us, do not have hope. Do not think you will be something else. Do not think or dream that your situation will become bitter or different. They come to remind us you are under incubation.
1: From The Guardian, I'm Nasheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, why Culture Matters in Occupied Palestine. Emma Graham Harrison, you're a senior international affairs correspondent for The Guardian and you recently made a visit to the city of Jenin in the West Bank. Why were you there and what was it
3: like? So I went to pick up my colleague Sufian, at his house in East Jerusalem. He then drove us And we were heading to the Freedom Theatre because there'd been this raid. And we were interested to talk to them about why a theatre would be a target for a military raid.
0: On Wednesday, Israeli soldiers raided the Freedom Theatre in Jenin, a renowned cultural institution. So there's
3: Jenin, the City, which is an old city. It's kind of bustling, lots of traffic, lots of roadside stalls selling pomegranates, bananas. Then at the edge of that is the refugee camp. The Janine refugee camp is home to people who, in 1948, when the State of Israel was created, they were displaced. And so these refugee camps are places that people have been living in for over 70 years now. So their houses, apartment buildings, very close together, very tightly packed in. It's sort of notorious as a place that's been a real hotbed of militancy, of the... Armed Palestinian uprisings, the first and second intifadas. And the Freedom Theatre is at the edge of one of these roads into the camp. I mean, we can see the houses are very close together. You can also see bullet holes on quite a lot of them. This is a place where people live with a lot of violence.
4: This is from last incursion or the incursion before it. You see, it's like um, some of the apartment and the houses are totally burned. Some of them lost part of the roof as we see.
3: Uh, There's an advert Freedom Theatre, Feminist Theatre Festival through the Eyes of Women. Here we are.
1: Most people wouldn't necessarily think that a place like Janine Refugee Camp would have a theatre. And I guess that is its point. Emma, what were your first impressions as you arrived?
3: It's down a little alley. But the sign is on the main road. And the director who we were going to meet, Amit Tabassi, said that was for a reason. He said the whole Freedom Theatre wants Israeli soldiers who come into the camp on military expeditions, which happen quite often, to see that sign. Because part of what he sees as the theatre's role is cultural resistance. And he says the Israeli military don't expect to see theatre here. They don't think of us as modern people with a cultural life. Salaam alaikum. So we got to the Freedom Theatre, we parked up, and there was a guy in the yard area who was sweeping up leaves and trying to corral some of the young teenager actors in to help. What's he saying to the kids? The cleaning. It emerged after a few minutes that that was Ahmed Tabasi. You know, he's director of the Freedom Theatre, but he does everything. Are they the performers or the audience? They are, uh, both. both. <laughs> he finished the clearing up and then we went into his office and sat down, which was this fantastically colourful, artistic, slightly chaotic room with lots of paintings on the wall. What a great office. This is after, uh, you know, we fixed
4: the stuff, the things after they was here. I destroyed everything.
3: It had been ransacked when it was raided and they sort of repainted it and put it back together, but the door didn't properly close. And what
1: was he like? You're sat across the desk from him in this quite bohemian sounding chaotic office. What was your impression of Ahmed?
3: Ahmed Tabasi. he's in his late 30s. He's quite wiry and he's got a short, slightly bohemian beard. But the main thing I say about him is he just gives this sort of real impression of being almost like a coiled spring. There's this sense of a huge amount of creative energy and ideas and ambitions. He went to study in Norway and came back and he could have had a creative life elsewhere and he chose to come back. And I think you can see there's this sense of vocation. And it's a big commitment.
4: thing. You don't need to do a big project. You don't need to do a big, arty, sophisticated theatre blaze. It's about being here and open the door for the kids. This is the most important work, even more important than Shakespeare, the globe. Voila.
1: So Ahmed is obviously inspired by the work that he does. Can you tell me more about it? What does the Freedom Theatre actually offer young people in Janine?
3: So, the day I was there, I was lucky enough to get there on a day when they were having their first performances since the raid. It's a big theatre, probably about 100, 150 in the audience, a Mm. proper stage, tiered seating going up about 10 or 15 levels. The older kids were doing a performance in which they watched their friends be injured and die. And it was incredibly moving. There was a sort of mutual respect, the adults, all of them, you could see they had this real respect for what the kids were doing. And out of that, the kids had this kind of excitement, this adoration. And I spoke to some of the audience after the performance. They were just people from the neighbourhood who'd chosen to come. And they also said it was really moving and inspiring for us to see our stories being told on stage. <laughs> I need to cry when I
4: see our kids say what they feel to the world and nobody listen to them. Nobody say what the Israeli occupation they do with them
3: the work with kids is really a way of processing trauma in a community, in a society where there's certainly no therapy. It's a very poor community. And potentially also, you know, when we think about trauma in the UK, we think of it as processing bad things that have happened to us. But the kids in Janine refugee camp are in a sort of ongoing nightmare, really. So processing something that's ongoing is a lot more complicated than mm. dealing with something that's in your past. Tabassi, says ultimately he wants the kids to be able to express themselves and he also wants them to change their lives and change their dreams so that they aren't just dreaming of becoming a martyr someone who dies for the cause in a mm. violent struggle which at the moment a lot of them see as their only they think sort it's of only option yeah, exactly. The only future, and he said, "You know, I want them to dream of being an artist. I want Janine Camp to be famous for its novelist. I novelists. want to see a DJ, an actor, a doctor, an engineer." An, not for the armed groups that come out of it. The
4: SWAT just come. They surrounded our entire unit through the wire mesh. I see Danny. I tried to catch his eyes, but he's not doing it to me.
1: Well. In 2017, Ahmed staged a one-man play about his journey from being a teenage militant fighting the Israeli army in Janine refugee camp in 2002 to getting involved with the Freedom Theatre. What did he tell you about how that happened?
3: He was sent to prison when he was 17. He had a four-year sentence.
4: Luckily, I didn't get killed in the invasion in 2002. I was 17 years old. They destroyed the camp, arrested us.
3: And And while they were there, they set up an illicit underground kind of sketch group that particularly when people were released would do little performances.
4: So, you know, when somebody will release, we make a night, some music, some uh, songs, you know, enjoying, not really feeling
3: so bad. And he organised one of these. It was videoed and the video was somehow smuggled out. Mm. But when it got out, The prison authorities were furious because they weren't meant to have costumes, they weren't meant to have cell phones to record things, they certainly weren't meant to be doing plays. And so they tried to find out who'd done it. The footage was so grainy they couldn't see who it was. They sort of lined up all the inmates and said, right, nobody's leaving here till we find out who did this. And he said he looked around at this massive bureaucracy of imprisonment, of control, and he realised he had done that with theatre. That that was the power of his art and his creativity. And he said he saw in that moment that this was a form of resistance that was just as powerful, in some ways more powerful than taking up weapons. And he decided that was what he wanted to do.
1: Emma, the Freedom Theatre doesn't just operate in Janine doing this youth work. When you actually look it up, it has this real international reputation for productions like Gaza Metro, which imagines an underground train network connecting the different parts of Palestine, and Animal Farm, which was very critical of the Palestinian Authority. Can you tell me more about that? So they've
3: got... An incredibly impressive track record, artistically, making productions which tour around the world. Tabassi had a one-man play at London. I had dinner with a friend who's done a lot of artistic stuff internationally and said that it was one of the best plays he'd ever seen. I was there on New Year's Eve and Ahmed was leaving on the 1st to go to Baghdad for the Arab Theatre Festival and they were going to be the opening act.
1: Take me back to the beginnings of the Freedom Theatre. How did this outpost of Palestinian cultural freedom, how did it first establish itself?
3: So the story of the Freedom Theatre is so extraordinary, you probably wouldn't believe it if it was in a film. It goes back really a couple of generations. It begins with a Jewish-Israeli woman, Anamir, who married a Palestinian refugee, Saliba Khamis, during the first intifada, she became concerned that the kids in Janine camp were out of education. Everything sort of shut down. And so she set up education projects for like the children neighbor, in the camp.
4: The kids to draw. So I still remember that scene. You see like a one, two, three hundred line in the street where children are drawing. And you can see this woman wearing white with a white kufiya, with the heavy yeah. Arabic Hebrew accent. But you feel how strong she
3: is. One of the women she worked with was called Samira Zabedi. And in 1993, after Anna won a prize called the Alternative Nobel Prize, she took the money from that and used it to build a theatre, a children's theatre called the Stone Theatre, with Samira in Samira's house. Arnold died of cancer, though, in 1995, and the project fell apart. Right, The theatre sort of stopped at that point. And a few years later, the Second Intifada began, violence returned. And Samira Zabedi's son, Zachariah, in his life, you can see a lot of the trauma, the pain, that the kids of Janine Camp lived through. So he was shot when he was throwing stones when he was 13 and left with a permanent limp. He was jailed for the first time at 14. He was not a member of any of the militant groups in the camp until 2002, when basically his world was shattered. His mum was shot dead when she was standing in a friend's house. Shortly after, his brother was shot and killed, and then their home was demolished by military bulldozers. And that was the home that had been the Stone Theatre as well. So in the space of a few months, the anchor of his life fell apart.
1: So Zachariah grew up alongside the theatre, but his childhood was scarred by violence. What happened next?
3: After that, he turned to militancy. He decided that violent resistance was the path for Palestinian liberation, perhaps for revenge as well. And he rose through the ranks very quickly and soon became basically the de facto political boss of the camp, senior leader in Al-Aqsa Brigade, and one of Israel's most wanted terrorists. He was involved in an attack that killed six people in a Likud office, a suicide bombing in Tel Aviv, acts of extreme violence.
1: God, that is an awful list of terror and suffering that he inflicted.
3: Then what? A few years later, he started to say publicly in interviews that he felt the uprising had failed, that using violence to achieve Palestinian liberation had proved a dead end, and that he wanted to connect with Israeli peace activists to try and find a different path. Right. And one of the people he connected with was the son of Mir, who'd set up the Stone Theatre.
1: Coming full circle
3: here. Exactly. So Juliano Mirkhamis, the son of a Jewish Israeli woman and a Palestinian refugee father. And Zakaria Zabedi, one of the most wanted militants in the West Bank, came together to found the Freedom Theatre.
1: It's such an extraordinary story that this militant who had killed civilians was wanted by the Israeli authorities. Ultimately, he rejected violence and chose a very different path.
3: Obviously, you might be wondering how did a super-wanted terrorist get to run a theatre project, but there was a series of amnesties and he was released. And basically, yeah, they went to continue their mother's work, trying to use theatre both as a form of therapy for children in a context where there is no therapy and also as a form of cultural resistance. And what happened to both of them? What happened to Giuliano and Zakaria? So Giuliano was assassinated outside the Freedom Theater. Artist,
0: peace activists worldwide are mourning the loss of a leading figure in Palestinian creative nonviolence resistance. Giuliano Merhamis, the head of a theater for Palestinian children, was killed on Monday in the West it's Bank. It's
3: never town been clear who Thomas. killed him. Some people think it was a sort of Israeli plot that his model of cultural resistance was threatening. Other people think that it was conservative figures inside the camp because something that is really important when you talk about the theatre is that it's not just about resisting Israeli occupation and defining Palestinian identity. They're also fighting against cultural conservatism within their own society. And there's always been people who've really not approved of what they're doing. Zabedi's story is a bit more complicated. His amnesty was cancelled. In 2019, he was arrested again by Israeli authorities. In 2021, he managed to escape by digging a tunnel with a spoon, but was recaptured after five days and is back in an Israeli prison.
1: Well, Emma, the Freedom Theatre defines itself as a site of cultural resistance to the Israeli occupation. Can you tell me a bit more about what that means?
3: Ahmed Tabasi told me that a lot of what they want to do is to challenge stereotypes, to define what it means to be Palestinian. And part of that is an, an opposition to an Israeli narrative, which in many cases denies the existence of a Palestinian identity. When I was in Israel, one of the people I interviewed was the former head of the domestic security services, a man called Ami Aylon. He's also former head of the Navy, so absolutely the heart of the Israeli establishment. And what he said to me was, part of our problem in seeking to reach some kind of long-term peace deal is that too many Israelis refuse to recognise Palestinian identity, that they don't see Palestinians as a people, they just see them as people.
1: What does that mean exactly?
3: So if you go back through history, you see consistently that there are many people in Israel who deny that Palestinians have a national identity, that there is such a thing as being a Palestinian. I think you can even see that inside Israel, where, for instance, Palestinian citizens of Israel, generally by Jewish citizens of Israel, are just referred to as Arabs. And, you know, you can look back, for instance, someone like Golda Meir, the Israeli prime minister in 1969, said famously, there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. And so there's this Negation of the idea that Palestinians have a national identity to fight for. So I suppose there's two struggles. One is simply to have the idea of a Palestinian identity recognized. And then the second half of that is around what a Palestinian identity is. Because as Tabassi said, as I think many of us know, too often that identity is presented as an identity of fighters, militants, terrorists. And that doesn't leave a space, really, for much humanity, creativity, all the richness of a long tradition.
4: For the 75 years, the Israeli occupation dehumanised the Palestinians. The Israeli propaganda, the West propaganda of Muslims and Arabs, and the balaclava and the big belly with big beards, with big guns. And that's the only way that the West know Arabic or Palestinian or Muslims. That's the picture. No, now with the Freedom Theatre, we will bring the humanity back to the Palestinians and show them in the way that we are artists.
3: One of the things that's so brilliant about the Freedom Theatre is it's exploring both how Palestinian identity has been distorted by all these years of violence and occupation, but also in that process creating a internationally famous Palestinian autistic identity. You know, Mm. they have done performances around the world and have been acclaimed not for their therapy work or their trauma, but as brilliant performers who make great pieces of art. So their work
1: is non-violent, but we know that Janine Refugee Camp is a centre for violent resistance to the Israeli occupation. What's the theatre's relationship like to that?
3: I think one of the things that's important about the theatre is that they've always been honest. They are 100% committed to art, to non-violent work, but they've never tried to cover up the fact that they are rooted in a community that is very violent and that that inevitably is part of the lives of people connected with the theatre. And I think anyone who didn't expect that would be sort of unrealistic. And I think that's part of the nuance that can sometimes get lost in these stories, particularly somewhere like Israel and Palestine, where there's so much pain and loss and grief on both sides. If you've lost family in a suicide bombing, it's a big ask to approach the other side with nuance. Equally if your mother's been shot as Zubaidi's mother was, it's easy to understand why you might pick up a gun. And that's partly why this conflict is so difficult. But you know, the people I spoke to who know the region best, say that you don't try to make some kind of settlement or peace deal with people who are already your friends.
1: Coming up, why are so many Palestinian artists being detained?
2: Finding your perfect home was hard.
1: Emma, you told us about this very scary assault on the Freedom Theatre's workers and the theatre itself in December, but this isn't the first time the theatre has been targeted, is it?
3: Absolutely not. Because they live in one of the most violent places in the West Bank, there's been a lot of collateral damage. Fighting broke out during a performance during a feminist festival last September, People, the audience initially thought it was part of the sound effects, and then right. had to shelter there from the bullets and the explosions for hours. But the actress
4: continued to finish; it was crazy. But then, yeah, two hours inside, no water, no oxygen. Uh, I was so afraid of something will happen but yeah
3: definitely. in july it was damaged by bombing during an israeli raid a different one last year three of their participants were killed 17 26 and 30 year olds in june a 15 and 17 year old who participated in the theater were killed but then there's also been targeted detentions, arrests of leadership. So Mustafa Shetta, who's currently facing a 6 months administrative detention, that's the one where there's no charges, no trial. He spent six months in administrative detention in 2015. And the chairman, Bilal al-Sadi, was detained in 2022. He did have a military trial, but he was sentenced for an undisclosed charge. So he couldn't see or contest the evidence that he was being charged for.
1: Emma, the Israeli military said to us that it doesn't target artists or cultural workers. They argue they're fighting a terrorist organisation that takes cover behind a civilian population, but it is not the first time they've been accused of this. Poets, writers, even a clown have been detained and are being detained now. How can we make sense of it?
3: The challenge with these things is, of course, it's possible around the world, there is a long tradition of crossover between artistic and militant activities. But because in many cases, there's no trial, if there is a trial, it's in a closed military court. These are people who are publicly committed to nonviolence. And there's absolutely no evidence provided that they're doing anything else. And so what it looks like, in as far as any of us can see, is that these are people who are carrying out cultural activities, which the Israeli authorities find threatening. It's hard to see it any other way. And what about what's happening in Gaza? What certainly has been happening is that brilliant artists and really important cultural figures have been killed, have been detained. Like for instance, Rafat al ria who's a poet whose last poem sort of unbearably poignantly really was about turning his death into a moment of hope for a child. His poem was then picked up and read by famous actors and has gone, I think, around the world.
2: If I must die,
3: let it bring hope. Let it be a tale. Perhaps you could say that in his poetry, he was able to convey the horror of being in Gaza and waiting for death in a way that was incredibly moving and able to touch people beyond even perhaps photos of children in the rubble or people grieving their families. And I think in that you see both the power of art and why authorities might be frightened of it. And I think you've seen that around the world, most figures of authority are actually frightened of art.
1: Emma, why is an assault on culture at a time when it's already difficult to process the sheer level of numbers of people being killed in Gaza? Why does the culture, why does that matter so much?
3: Part of the reason this matters is that in war, it's very easy. It's perhaps natural to dehumanize the other, the enemy, the person you're fighting. And that tends to make it easier to commit or to tolerate acts of extreme violence. And it's important to note this is on both sides. You know, you see absolutely horrific anti-Semitic comments from People who present themselves as being aligned with or part of the Palestinian struggle for independence. Mm. But ultimately, both Israelis and Palestinians are going to live as neighbors, ideally peaceful neighbors, in this very small patch of land. And if you can't see the people who are currently your enemy as human, it's very hard to see how you find a way to any kind of long term peace and security for both sides.
1: Emma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Emma Graham Harrison, Senior International Affairs Correspondent for The Guardian. You can follow her reporting and all our coverage of the Israel-Gaza war at theguardian.com. We approached the Israeli Defence Forces for comment on this story. In a statement, they said... During the operation on Janine, a number of suspects were detained. Those were not found to be connected to terrorist organisations were released after a few hours. The IDF takes cases of civilians and damaged property very seriously. The cases presented here are contrary to IDF values and the conduct of the soldiers will be examined. That's it for today. I'm Nasheen Iqbal and this episode was produced by Courtney Youssef. Sound design was by Solomon King The executive producer was Huma Khalili. We'll be back again tomorrow.
0: This is the Guardian.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music, where all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.